Warm greetings to all of you and welcome back to Intersections. But our aspiration is to get to fuse the what people might consider opposing ideas and forces in the world, the inner and the outer, the material and the spiritual, purpose and profits, the East and the West and beyond. With the aspiration of having us through that lens of dissolving those boundaries, be able to experience more of what there is in terms of the potentialities in us, in our organizations and in the world. Today, it is a great pleasure for me to have in our midst uh, someone who I have such deep admiration for, not just for what he does, but also for how he does it and how he lives. Arthur Brooks. Let me introduce Arthur. Arthur is a professor at Harvard, best-selling author, a happiness expert. He teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School of Public Policy, as well as at the Business School. He has written over the course of the last several months a column in The Atlantic, which is a very prolific expression of his research and work on happiness called How to Build a Life, where he offers really practical wisdom on applying the science of happiness in all situations in life and work. He's the best-selling author of 11 books on a wide range of topics from economic opportunity to the search for happiness. He also has a new book that is scheduled for release in January 2022 from Strength to Strength, where his focus is on helping those of us who are entering into the second half of our life to create a roadmap for finding meaning, success, and deep purpose. He's also got the podcast on the art of happiness and was actually making a documentary on something called The Pursuit, which Variety has called one of the best documentaries on Netflix in August 2019. He's given hundreds and hundreds of speeches in the last decade across a wide range of cities and countries. He's featured in a lot of the leading media. And here's a quote from him just to start us off. Happiness isn't found in some finite checklist of goals that we can diligently complete and then coast along. It's how we live our lives in the process. So on that note, let me invite um, Arthur into our midst. Thank you, Hitendra. What a wonderful opportunity to be with you and, and, and welcome to our live audience. It's an honor to be with you and a blessing. Thank you. Arthur, you know, I was thinking maybe the right place to start is the very, very beginning. What was it like, like growing up in your family? So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. I'm a native. Of, I was born in a city called Spokane in the state of Washington, but I, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, which is this, it's a kind of a famous place now. It was not so famous and not so fancy when I was a kid. It was a place known because the Boeing Aircraft Corporation was located there. And it was kind of a company town in those days. And my family, we moved there in the late 1960s because my father had a college teaching job. He was a mathematician. I come from a long line of artists and academics. So virtually everybody on both sides of my family is a musician or an artist or a scholar of some sort. My father was a mathematician. My grandfather taught philosophy and theology. And, and it went on from there. And, and so growing up in Seattle, Washington, it was a wonderful environment. I was very lucky to be from a family that valued ideas, uh, that was a very you know deeply spiritual, a religious family, and that one that valued education an awful lot. And the result is I was able to grow up in a ferment in which I kind of always saw my life as a startup. And I don't mean to use entrepreneurial language, or I don't want people to think that I think of my, my life as a business, but as an enterprise, you know, where I've been, I was able to cultivate ideas to get sort of explosive rewards and, and I felt very supported from the very beginning. You know, my parents, they basically, if you look at it in today's language, they saw me kind of as an entrepreneur and they were sort of venture capital. You know, they wanted to know what my plans were. They wanted to know if I had a good idea and they wanted to make sure that it was a real flight of fancy in my life. And, and so the result is I've always pursued my life as kind of a startup enterprise, but it started with my parents, my wonderful parents now of long, a blessed memory. Both of them died quite young. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that intrigues me about you your journey, uh, Arthur, is that you tend to dissolve boundaries a lot. And one of the ways I see that is how, A, you have led so many different, if you want to call it, lives professionally, and B, that you draw from multiple streams of human like wisdom and inspiration. You're not limiting yourself to any one domain. Where did that kind of sensibility arise from in you? Well, I started off my career relatively abruptly when I was 19 years old in the classical music business. And, and from the time I was eight or nine years old, I knew I wanted to be a classical musician. I started on violin when I was four years old, five years old, I started the piano. And by the time I was eight years old, I was playing the French horn. And that's what really stuck because I was most talented at that. And it gave me a sense of identity. It gave me a sense of 
of great beauty, of a, a sense of accomplishment. I just loved it. And that's all I wanted to do. Now, this is a very American thing, of course. I thought I wanted to be the greatest French horn player in the world. Most people, you know, later I married a girl from Spain and, and she said, you wanted what? That is the weirdest goal I've ever heard. But in the United States, we all have these strange goals. It's a wonderful country that way, I guess. And when I, I went to college at 18, like most people do after high school, and it was not successful. And part of the reason is because my, my heart was not in it. I wanted to study music. I wanted to express myself in, the, in these pretty non-traditional ways. And so I dropped my required classes. And at the end, I was taking all chamber music and musically expressive classes. And on the side, I was taking uh, classes in tabla. So I was studying Hindustani classical music and North Indian classical drumming. Uh, in a pretty serious way. And uh, if there are any college students watching us today, let me say that, that as kind of bohemian and interesting as that sounds, that's not the path to college success. So the college asked me to pursue my success elsewhere. And at 19, I found myself with the opportunity to go professional as a French horn player. So I did that all the way through my 20s without having gone to college. My parents affectionately called that my gap decade. And, you know, I was, I saw, I played in 25 countries. I played in all 50 states playing chamber music. And I wound up in the end of the Barcelona Symphony in Spain. And I actually went there not, uh, I didn't meet my wife who's from Barcelona there. I actually went there in pursuit because I was in love with her. I had met her on a, on a concert tour in France. We didn't speak a word of the same language. She spoke zero English and I spoke zero Spanish or Catalan, which is the, the language in Barcelona. And I went there on this idea that I thought I could close the deal. And so I literally quit my job and moved to Barcelona and took a job in the Barcelona Symphony on this idea of the explosive rewards of the generative impact of true, passionate, and companionate love. I was I was a believer in love. And, and during that period, she truly helped me to come alive and understand that what I was doing as a, as a musician was not about music. What I was doing about in music was about beauty, happiness, and love. And there are many, many ways to express that. So I, I went back to college and I wound up pursuing my doctorate, becoming a social scientist with the ethos that what I was going to try to do with my life going forward was to study the principles and teach the principles of what it means to be fully alive around the context of beauty beauty, love, and happiness. And that was not going to have borders around it from psychological perspectives or psychoanalysis, but to be fully alive, even happiness was not going to limit us. Because in truth, there's so much sacredness and suffering. You know, the idea of being fully alive means that you must be unhappy if you want to be truly happy in, in a full sense. And, and you learn that in the world of art. And then I tried, I complemented that by studying a lot of mathematics, a lot, a lot of neuroscience, a lot of languages, finished my PhD and became an academic and I've dedicated myself to lifting people up and bringing them together using all the influences of intellect and art and beauty and the world and spirituality and bringing my own religious thoughts into the whole idea. And the truth is, life is just this smorgasbord of influences and things, and they're all complementary. As a social scientist, I mean, I read the academic writings and social science and psychology and behavioral economics and, and neuroscience, and they all are saying the same things that you and I have studied as, as people of serious religious views. They're all going back to the Vedas, the Upanishads, the biblical teachings, the ancient Greeks, they've all been saying these things for thousands of years, but we're just better and better at looking for the data and natural experiments to show how this works. And so it all comes together in my work now today. And I'm so, I'm so lucky. I'm so blessed. Ah, that's so uplifting. I want to go back to your dad's profession for a minute. Mathematics, as you said, because I'm reminded in the journey you've just shared with us about a quote from uh, Ramanujan. Yeah, he was a genius mathematician of the 20th century whose work was tremendously path-breaking and creative from the outside, but it was coming from not a very tutored place in mathematics in that he didn't go to really any advanced mathematics college and uh, postgraduate degree programs, etc. It was all coming from within him. It was all coming mm -hmm. as intuitive revelations to him from time to time. And then at some point, he also said that to me, the number one represents the essential unity of spirit and the number infinity represents its infinite outer manifestations in nature. I'm hearing a little bit of that in your journey where with your wife having that point of discovery that it's not music for the sake of music. Music is one of these outer expressions of something that is more core. And uh, you express that core in terms of love and beauty enjoy. Yeah, for sure. You know, the key, it's it's interesting that we have a tendency to answer the wrong questions in life. We answer the what questions. And the, I mean, when people will ask you or me, I mean, we have these, we're, you and I are very lucky. You and I have kind of the same job. We both teach about leadership and happiness at these fancy business schools. You know, you at the Columbia Business School and me at the, the Harvard Business School. We have very, very similar outlooks. We have very, very similar classes. 
And people ask us all the time, ask you and me and everybody watching us, what do you do? And by that, they mean, what do you do for a living? But that's actually the wrong question. You know, if somebody asked, and I know you would have an answer, why do you do what you do? You know, what would your answer be? Every single person watching us needs to be able to answer. And, and the challenge is, I mean, I'll give you 12 words or 20 words to come up with a why statement, the mission statement for why you do what you do. And it should revolve around service to others. It should revolve around the idea of earning your success for your skills meet your passions where you're generative, where you're made in God's image to, to build something that's good and true and beautiful that generates life. And the best example of that for me as a classical musician is the words of who I think is the greatest composer who ever lived, Johann Sebastian Bach in the West. And, you know, it's interesting because in the Western tradition, and we can talk about this, you know, the Eastern versus Western traditions of art, because I've also, I've studied Raga. I mean, I have actually studied Hindustani and also Carnatic music a little bit. And it's a very different approach, but the spiritual approach is the same. Bach, who is a deeply, deeply Christian man. I mean, he's awful, often called the fifth evangelist. You know, in the Christian tradition, there are four evangelists in the Bible. He's called the fifth evangelist because his music brought so many people closer to God. And he was asked near the end of his life, you know, why do you write music? That's the why question. He had 20 kids, for example. It's like, how do you feed all those kids with your music career? Those are boring questions. I mean, actually, if you have a lot of kids, you'd be interested in that. But but when he was asked, why do you write music? His answer was very clear and very simple. He said, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. In other words, serve God and serve your sisters and brothers in the world with your work. That's the why of your work. The why of your work is divine love and brotherly love. That's the divine purpose of your work. And you know that had such a big impact on me. And it helped me to understand that I can come at that from a hundred different dimensions. There's a, you know, the permutations are absolutely endless because the world is so vast and so beautiful and so limitless. But it also, it made it so that I was asking the right question relatively early on. And that's what made the creativity really come alive for me. Yeah, I'm so glad you shared that because I've had this kind of very ambivalent relationship with art over the years as from an appreciation standpoint, not a practitioner standpoint like you. I was never that talented in art myself. But from the outside, I've enjoyed the visual and the oral like splendor or beautiful sound and beautiful visual arts and what have you. But then I've often at times also not felt very comfortable with some artistic expressions, even though they have been well recognized and celebrated and respected in the world. And, and a part of me is asking myself, why is it Hedendra? While this is getting so much respect out there in the museum or in this performing arts theater, et cetera, that you are not feeling that something or the other. And at some point, I read something from Gandhi and he just like connected with me so immediately. And he, he said something like this. He said to me, like the only purpose of art is that, is the upliftment in a sense of human consciousness. And when art achieves that, it is art. It is beautiful. You know, when it doesn't, then it's not art to me. You know, so that, that was his art. And I realized, my, my heavens, that has been my filter too, intuitively, not analytically, but intuitively. And now you're saying that Bach actually kind of like said that that was his primary motive. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the great 19th century uh, philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, talked about this an awful lot, too. So he, like a lot of the late 19th century philosophers, saw the world phenomenologically, which is to say he understood that there is an, he, he believed there was an objective reality, but that we can't see it. I mean, Plato even talked about that. You know, the shadows on the cave wall is the closest that we can get to objective reality. And then there were some philosophers who literally said there was no objective reality. There was only subjective reality. Reality is created by your own senses of the world. Well, Schopenhauer rejected that. And I reject that. I think there is an objective reality, but I do think that we looked through the glass darkly. Schopenhauer believed that one of the ways that people can actually get a little bit of clarity on true objective truth is with art, especially music. He says it uplifts the soul and it pulls back the veil. There are these moments and it's a really funny thing. You know, people will, why do people cry when they hear very, very beautiful music? And Schopenhauer believed, and I think he's actually quite right, that there's this, you get belong beyond the phenomenological curtains. You get beyond your senses and you see something that's actually true and it's so pure. It's so intense that it's hard to bear. It's hard to understand. It's the same reason that people will cry because of love. You know, the cry of happiness or just out of the intense emotion that comes from experiencing love. People talk to, they'll talk about their children. They'll start crying. People will talk about their religious faith and they'll start crying. People listen to music and they'll start crying because they can't bear the intense emotion that actually comes from a little glimpse into objective reality. 
So that just puts an even more finer philosophical point on the same idea. And that's the reason I think all of us, we must expose ourselves to beauty. We must expose ourselves to art. And and by the way, also to ugliness into art, because that's part of being fully alive as well. Thanks, Arthur. Food for thought there. That last comment you made, you said ugliness as well, because that's part of art. Maybe you can double click on that a little bit. It's leaving me in a reflective state. I'm, I'm trying to kind of like fully fathom what that means in terms of how one responds to various kinds of art inspirations. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of of theology and philosophy that goes behind this concept that we that that suffering uh, that pain that trauma are the source of meaning and but fundamentally you know it's, it's interesting there are a lot of people these days in the space that you and I occupy as educators which is to talk about a better life and the science of happiness most of the practitioners in this they come from the psychoanalytic tradition from the tradition of Freud and Jung and, and fundamentally the philosophy is that the science of happiness is geared toward eradicating suffering to make suffering go away to take suffering out of our life it's kind of the opposite of the hippie generation's mantra if it feels good, do it. The opposite is if it feels bad, get rid of it, right? But that's not how you and I come at this particular science. That's not how you and I come at our work as scholars. The truth is, I think it's very important for happiness to be fully alive. You know, there's a, a great fourth century Catholic saint, Saint Irenaeus, and his most famous saying is that the glory of God is a man fully alive. Now, that's a gender exclusive way of putting it. So it's a person fully alive is the glory of God. And the glory of God is happiness. It is no matter what you're feeling, because happiness is actually not a feeling. Happiness is a phenomenon that, that will have as part of its characteristics, often will have feelings attached to it. So when I teach this, all of the things that, that are coming together, you know, the spirituality, the neuroscience, the art, the beauty, the theology, the, the psychology, the behavioral sciences, they all come together. But it's worth pointing out that there's also a set of macronutrients to the experience of well-being, of life satisfaction, that they are enjoyment. And that's mostly good feelings. There is satisfaction, which is a reward for what you're trying to do in accomplishment. Unfortunately, it doesn't last generally, but then there's meaning and there's purpose and purpose and meaning require a lot of suffering. They require that we look at the ugliness in life. They require that we experience the things that are difficult because if we don't, we won't really understand life itself. We won't even understand our own lives. And this is the great paradox of happiness that to get the macronutrient of meaning requires that we experience and we think about and we discern the nature of unhappiness as well. We have to face that because we won't be fully alive if we don't. Yeah. I'm getting it more now, Arthur, in the way you're thinking about it. And uh, it, it connects the dots for me. Your website, this is The Atlantic. And uh, Arthur, you write here, what, once every week, isn't it? Yeah, every Thursday morning at The Atlantic. Exactly. And it's always about happiness, human happiness, life satisfaction topics. But it gives me an opportunity to look at them from different angles. So ordinarily in my column, I'll take a particular subject, whether it's unhappiness or whether it's you know, coming back from COVID profitably, or whether it's a particular theory of happiness, and then I'll look at it from different angles. So I'll, you know, take the problem that people are talking about, or the issue, or the challenge, or the opportunity, and then I'll look at the science. And by when I say the science, I mean the social science and neuroscience, but I also mean the the philosophy and the theology and the spirituality uh, that that are behind and the art that undergird these truths. And then I'll talk about how people can use them. And so, you know, this is one of the most important things that people need to understand that the pursuit of knowledge and the use of knowledge requires the sharing of knowledge. You know, the one of the great insights about the science of happiness is that by understanding happiness and applying it to our lives and then sharing it with others, we can get happier. The reason for that is because if we treat happiness like a feeling, then it's, it resides in the limbic portions of the brain, the parts of the brain that revolved more than a million years ago, that it just, you know, and then happiness happens to us. And then it leaves like a butterfly. But if we actually try to understand it, try to understand ourselves, study ourselves seriously, that we apply ideas to our lives by practicing our lives differently. And then most importantly, if we share good ideas with other people, we will make these feelings metacognitive, which is to say, we will become aware of them and they'll be residing in the prefrontal cortex, the executive centers of the brain. And then here's the miracle. Then we can manage our own happiness, but it requires understanding, applying 
and most importantly, sharing these ideas. And that's what I'm trying to do every Thursday morning in my column. One of the things that continues to strike me there is just how you you practice what I heard from Mother Teresa once so beautifully. You know, she said, I love all faiths and I am in love with my faith. And uh, that's what I see in you. And it, it's so refreshing. Yeah, no, that, that's right. It's, it's one of the problems with general universalism is that there's a tendency to have admiration for all faiths, but no adherence or practice of any of them. You know, and that's often one of the problems with people who talk about, and, and I cast no aspersions, but I, I just discern this by looking at the data on religious practice. People who say I'm spiritual, but not religious, that's a little bit often winds up becoming, making you kind of a dabbler. And, you know, spirituality is a serious business. I mean, religion is a serious business. It's every bit as serious as mathematics. It's every bit as complex, you know, and, and everybody who's listening to us who considers her or himself a serious Hindu or Buddhist, or in my case, a Roman Catholic. I mean, I can get to the end of my life and have barely scratched the surface of the theology of the Roman Catholic Church and the wisdom that comes from the saints. But that's cross-pollinated with what, what of the great thinking that's happened in Judaism and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism, you know, all the great insights that have come. And, and so what I'm charged to do, I believe, is as Soren Kierkegaard always talked about, make a choice. You know, where are you going to dig in? What, what actually is your vehicle? What is your religion? But at the same time, not excluding the beautiful things that come from all these other religions. So when I'm in India, I have teachers that I've studied with, you know, people that I've met and, you know, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama, with whom I've worked very closely over the past seven years, who lives in, in Dharamsala in the northern Himalayan foothills, but also in Southern India, when I'm in Kerala, for example, you know, all, there are people that I will meet with. What do they do? They help me become a better Catholic. Some of the best teachings I've got from Hinduism have made me a better Catholic. My technique for meditation is better as a Catholic. I'm better able to recite my rosary in a way that's that gives greater adoration and veneration to God. I didn't necessarily get that from the great saints or the priests and leadership of the Roman Catholic Church. I got that from some of the people that I have meditated with and learned from in India, which, by the way, is such a wonderful spiritual virtual adept country. Every American who considers her or himself to be religious or spiritual, frankly, needs to be spending time in India. Boy, there's so much to unpack there. That is so beautiful. It was making me reflect on some of my own moments of growth. And uh, in the same way, as you're saying, sometimes borrowing from the insights and practices and the lived examples of the beautiful saints and others, in my case, being you know on the yoga path and being on Yogananda's path from some of the you know, exalted saints in Christianity and beyond. I mean, it's just, it's been beautiful. Actually, I'll share a story with you. I was uh, with my family. We were in Israel a few years ago and we were having one of those moments where we got into this heavy state of burdensomeness around all the things that are wrong in the world that need fixing. My wife, daughter and I were having that conversation over dinner at a restaurant. My mother had retired, you know, for the evening. I was in Israel with like these three most important women in my life. And then I realized that the little thing came to me that, Hitendra, be, be cautious. Don't get too caught up in this downward spiral of what's wrong with the world. I mean, uh, lift up a little bit, you know, the mood, the spirit, the can-do-ness of what we can do here. And I did that for a moment, but then we got caught in that spiral again, you know, in that human moment there. And then we come out and we are in Tel Aviv and we are walking on that Rothschild Boulevard. And there is this Orthodox Jew, quite clearly from his garb, who just comes over to us. And this is very rare. And all those days in Israel, this was the one time that, uh, you know, somebody who was a stranger, you know, just came over and just like spoke to us. And certainly an Orthodox Jew had never had that before. And he said, be like the bean, not like the fly. And, uh, I was intrigued and I thought maybe he's uh, evangelizing. Maybe there'll be a Torah or something that, you know, he'll have in his hand and he'd want to put in my hands at some point. And I asked him, sir, you know, can you tell me more? Like, what do you mean? He said, look, what does the bee do, right? It keeps looking around for making honey, you know, looking around for the flowers. What does the fly do? Even in the midst of prettiness and beauty, it's looking for the dirt. It's going to the dirt. So be, be like the bee because there'll always be messiness in the world, but there'll always be beauty in the world and you should be looking for the beauty in the world. And I was like, wow, this is the exact message that was coming to me that moment just uh, about 30 minutes ago when I was at dinner and I couldn't really direct my consciousness there. And now he's coming and he's teaching me that. And by the way, the conversation more or less gracefully ended there and he had nothing, he had no other agenda. He just wanted to share that message and then he was gone. And later I was looking through a book by Dayama, who is uh, one of the presidents of Self-Realization Fellowship, the organization Yogananda created. And in that she has a story about Yogananda where he was saying the same thing. He was saying the same metaphor of the bee and the bird, <laughs> the bee and 
the fly. So in, in that moment, I felt like he was speaking through me through the agency of an Orthodox Jew. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's incredible how consciousness will put in your path at the time when you actually need it. You know, that's happened to me several times in your wonderful country. I mean, as early on as an assistant professor, when I was had just finished my PhD, and I was looking for ways to, to synthesize various areas of spirituality, theology, philosophy with my training as a social scientist and my background in the arts, I came across the most important book for introducing Hinduism to the West, which is the autobiography of a yogi by Pramansa Yogananda, your guru, the with whom you have profound oneness. And I read it not once, but twice. And it had such a big impact on me. And it set me on this road. It's actually quite interesting that has led to a lot of the work. I mean, you talked at the, the outset of this conversation about a new book that I have coming out called From Strength to Strength, which is about finding happiness and purpose in the second half of life. It uniquely in the second half of life. So the second half of life is not shouldn't be a source of regret. It should be a source of opportunity. The big idea in that book comes from Yogananda and that I learned much more deeply from, from a teacher that I had in Palakkad in, in southern India named Sri Nochur Venkataraman. He's not famous in the West. He's a wonderful teacher. He's actually never been to the West. He has oneness with, and he's a follower of Ramana Maharshi. And he taught me about something that was really the center of you know what I'm doing in social science today, which is a Vedic idea called the ashramas. You know all about this, Hitendra, and a lot of our audience does too, but maybe some don't. The ashramas is an ancient Hindu concept of the quarters uh, that, that life a perfectly balanced life naturally falls into four quarters. Now, no matter how many years you're given, I mean, and, and often in the ancient texts, it'll talk about, you know, the perfectly balanced life is a hundred years and you get 25 years in each quarter, but you get what you get is, is the bottom line because only one in 6,000 people in the United States even lives to a hundred. So it, the odds are slim. Anyway, the first is in the Sanskrit word is brahmacharya, which is the, the student phase. And that's, you know, the first quarter of your life. The second is grihasta, which is the householder phase where you pursue your career and your knowledge and your success and you earn your money and you raise your kids and it's the worldly life. But what I was looking for and what I needed as a social scientist, which I got uniquely originally from Yogananda, but later from my teachers in Southern India, was this third phase called Vanaprastha, which comes from these two Sanskrit words, Van and Prastha, to retire into the forest. It doesn't mean literally retiring into the forest. It means stepping back to absorb the cosmic truths to step back from the hubbub of Grihasta, the big problem that people have, the big impediment to happiness that people have in their lives is they get addicted to worldly success, to the, you know, the wheel of worldly success, the treadmill of, you know, never quite getting satisfaction, but always looking for these rewards of money, power, pleasure, honor, sex, satisfaction, whatever it happens to be. And this Vanaprastha explicitly says, this is your second adolescence, man. Step back, reassess, redefine your, not your, your happiness, but your success in more spiritual terms, such that you can get to this last quarter, which is sannyasa, which is actual enlightenment. And you can't get enlightenment in the last quarter of your life unless you do the elite training of spirituality in this period, Vanaprastha. And that actually opened up a whole world of neuroscience and social science to me that I simply would not have gotten had I had my blinders on, had I had my eyes closed to the profound spiritual truths from a completely different part of the world. That is such a powerful explication of uh, that institution of those four those four parts of life. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Arthur. I remember the first time our paths crossed in the digital space. I've had the privilege of meeting you. And that was when your article came out in the Atlantic Monthly on that theme. And you, know, you talked about how your professional decline is closer, coming closer than you think. Can you share that story that you had in the, you know, in the in the beginning of the article that kind of like sparked, uh, you know, a little bit, some of this kind of motivation in you to also relook a little bit at the equation of life. Yeah. What, it was a, a story that I talk about in that Atlantic monthly article that's actually converting into a book because this is ordinarily the way that, you know, for those who are watching, the way that Hitendra and I, we write books is you surface an idea and see if it's resonant. And then if it is, you develop it. Otherwise, who knows? And so I wrote this article that, that started with a story that was actually in somewhat autobiographical insofar as when I was 51 years old, I was thinking an awful lot about what the second half of my life was going to look like. And I kind of thought, you know, I was working really, really hard, 70, 80 hours a week, which I, I like working hard. And my work is an avocation for me. And it's a very beautiful thing. And I'm glad 
to have it. But I thought, you know, I'm going to work and work and work and work and earn and earn and earn. And where does it lead? And I, I kind of felt at age 51 that maybe at the time that I was maybe starting to miss a step here and there. I didn't know why. And so I was had this experience. I was on an airplane. And it was nighttime. It was 11 o'clock at night or something. And I was coming from the West Coast to the United States to the East Coast. And, and I could hear it was dark. So I could hear a couple, an older couple behind me talking, but I couldn't see them because it was dark on the plane. And the husband was telling the wife that he wished he were dead. And his wife was saying, oh, don't say that. It's not true that nobody loves you anymore. And he was saying, you know, nobody returns my calls. I'm a nobody. And it was just awful for 20 minutes. And then we got to the, we landed in Washington, D.C. and the lights went on. And, you know, I'm, I'm a social scientist. So I'm sort of curious, you know, what am I listening to? I kind of had this biography in my head of this guy who, you know, maybe he had never been appreciated really. Maybe he, he was forced to retire and, he, you know, he never built the business. He wanted to get the education that he wanted. Maybe he, you know, he's just disappointed with his life. And everybody stood up and the lights went on and I turned around. It was one of the most famous men in the world. This is a guy, not controversial, not a politician, nothing like that, who had achieved more in his life than a hundred other people together had done in their lives. This is somebody who should be enjoying. He's very old. This is somebody who should have been enjoying his life in a big way, but he was suffering and he was suffering because he did not. And I came to know later, and this is what I pointed out. He was stuck in Grihasta. He was stuck in the worldly rewards phase of his life. He'd never been able to make this retiring into the forest. He'd never been able to, to go into the second adolescence of understanding what true enlightenment can actually bring. If you do the blessed and wonderful work of contemplation of of discernment, of spiritual and philosophical introspection. He'd never done that. And that was hugely, hugely interesting and useful for me. And that's what led me really on a path to, to write about it for mostly for Western audiences. But I also have a, a publisher that will publish this book in India as well. Arthur, I mean, you know, when we hear you speak in your words, in your ideas, in your energy, there's a preacher in you and there's a mystic in you. There's a monk in you in, in so many ways. And uh, I, I'm just curious because this is something that I also held so close to my heart, which is to bridge these two worlds that are deeply spiritual and on the other hand, that deeply sort of engaged in the affairs of the world. And you have done that in such a successful way, right? There was music first, then your academic career, then you go and be the president of this uh, storied institution in Washington, D.C. And then from there, you come now to one of the big pillars of uh, Western higher education and, you know, one of the bastions, right, of uh, capitalism, and of uh, leadership thought around public policy, what have you, whether it's the Kennedy School, the Business School at Harvard, right? And so when you bring this energy, when you bring these ideas, this free from kind of expressions of your core into an environment that, you know, traditionally I would offer perhaps even in DC as well as here in, in, at Harvard, in that kind of liberal forefront of culture and thought ferment, you know, hasn't necessarily always been a natural incubation place for mm -hmm. the more deeply contemplative and spiritual traditions, except in certain pockets like the divinity school and what have you. Right. And arguably not the divinity school. I mean, the Divinity School has really moved away from, in many people's estimation, most, I don't mean Harvard, I mean most of the Divinity Schools in the United States at the major universities have moved away from this serious love for faith per se. I mean, it's become this more secular, humanistic set of institutions. And, and part of this has to do with uh, sort of the dark side of the Enlightenment, I think. Of course, we all appreciate the Enlightenment. It's led us to you know, be able to make a living the way that we do, that to raise our children and its knock-on effects or the avoidance of disease that we would have died from, certainly, of you know, all of the good things, so many good things, material good things in life, the Industrial Revolution, which, you know, had a dark side too, but, but on balance, I mean, we should, our world is so much better. But let's not forget that it also led to a pervasive kind of secular humanism that says that what we're talking about in this program is kind of off limits intellectually, that there's a, a wall between these two ideas. And that's not right. I think that that's actually an error. That's a, and, and that's not just a moral error. I think that that's an intellectual error. I mean, it's almost as if you would, to me, it's almost as if you would look at the, you know, a Picasso painting and say, look, if I can't actually find evidence of Picasso himself, the painter in the painting, Picasso doesn't exist. And so therefore we must disregard him. And all we can do is study the painting itself. 
you know, that idea of secular humanism that has this at its root, the religion is scientism per se, kind of does that. And the truth of the matter, there is a painting and there is a painter and you're not going to find the painter in the painting. You're not going to do that. You need to understand that, that they complement each other and they exist in parallel and there is no conflict between them. And a properly integrated intellectual and spiritual life sees no tension between these things. Now, the, the real question, Hitendra, is how do you and I maintain that balance? You know, there's a, it's very easy in hyper-intellectual enlightenment environments to either deny it or make it secret, your spiritual predilections, or to actually become kind of a professional spiritual person. And I think that there's a middle path for that, which basically says, be natural, be yourself, don't be afraid, you know, be a spy for spiritual ideas in plain sight. So we don't have to be priests and yogis, because you know, that's not what God wanted for Hitendra and Arthur. That wasn't the path, you know, you're not going to be a professional guru, I'm not going to be a Roman Catholic priest. But at the same time, the naturalness of integrating these ideas, I think it's what people hunger for. I think it's what people want. Telling people that if they're going to be good intellectuals, they need to cut this part off from themselves to slice their heart in half in this way. Sorry, you must not regard Picasso the man if you are going to study Picasso the painting. That's, I think, it's a poverty of the way that we understand this and, and we can do better and I think that we have a mission. You and I and the people watching us, we have a mission to integrate all of it. What you're saying has in it the seeds of something that could be like a really profoundly positive revolution in the years ahead, in the way we develop our societies, in the way we build our institutions, in the way we envision the future of education and the uh, perhaps coming together of science and spirituality into one common integrated platform, you know, that quest for truth, the quest for truth, even that goes beyond what our eye can see. So um, Arthur, just to continue down this path, which is so beautiful, and you're in a very inspired you know, place right now. I just want to kind of hear more from you on this. Well, one of the things that has been striking me in recent times is how actually the opportunity for doing more of this is emerging from even just from the science itself, which is that even though science, to your point, had kind of like dispensed with other kind of language and pathways to truth, you know, that spirituality might represent, that in their own findings, they are starting to more and more come to this place where they're getting glimpses of something bigger and deeper, etc than might have been known otherwise. So it's so fascinating to see our friends who are doing some of the deepest, you know, science from psychology and psychotherapy and neuroscience and other disciplines start to stumble into these truths, which are validating in some ways what ancient traditions have really fostered for, for millennia. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We see this again and again. You know what? Even if you are a secular humanist, but you study the works of Plato and Aristotle, Socrates, you find that they were talking about things that, that we're now understanding and elucidating with natural experiments using human subjects in the world of behavior social science today, for sure. But there's a slightly more cosmic level of you know what you're saying. And I, I remember this from my father, my father, who was a mathematician, and his PhD was actually in biostatistics. And he one time said something really interesting to me, because he was a deeply Christian man, it was the center of his life. And he said, you know, the greatest miracle that God ever gave us, and I said, that's gonna be real competition. What's that? He said, God created randomness. But most importantly, he put tails on the distributions of events. Thank God for the tails on the distribution of events. He believed that miracles actually existed, but they were events that happened in a random distribution at two and three standard deviations from the mean. What did he say? God chose to use what we would discern as statistical truth, mathematical truth, as part of his creation. That's how he understood the cosmic reality. You know, as somebody who was at the forefront of science, he said, look, there's scientists, oh, quite appropriately, they try to expand what's known to understand what is known. But there's always more that's unknown. And even more than that is unknowable. And when you're at the forefront of what is known and trying to expand it, it's like you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you're looking into the gorge at the vast unknown and unknowable. And it makes you get a little glimpse into the divine. It's not the unknowable is not evidence of a lack of the divine. He believed that it was evidence of the divine was the, the fact that we can apprehend that there is an unknowable, yet it, it 
is unknowable per se. I, I know I'm actually kind of abstract at this point, but it's worth reflecting on the unknowability of something that we know actually exists. And in so doing, we have a relationship with this cosmic consciousness that can oversee it, that can introduce it into our lives, and that can put us on a journey to see what we can know and, and what we can't still appreciate. You know, that reminds me of a, a thought I once uh, sort of read. I think this is from, from Yogananda's teachings for me, where what the spiritual teacher was sharing is that there's a reason why it is really hard to prove the existence of God. And he said, because if that proof was something that through the senses or through logic could be just arrived at just from the outside, then God's plan for the universe, which in part requires him to offer to us free will, so that we, of our own choosing, go through the choices we have to make and the discoveries we have to make and the direction we want to set and the decision to want to sort of uh, pursue a certain third stage in that four stages of your going from strength to strength and etc. That choice wouldn't be there anymore because if it was so centrally there in front of us, the tremendous omnipotence and omniscience and, uh, you know, and everything that we think of and see of in the creative force you know if that was just so vividly there then there's no choice you know left anymore so to give us choice he has to play this role of kind of like just being a little bit hidden from you be, being that painter who just keeps putting beautiful paintings out there but doesn't necessarily reveal himself directly to the eye. Yeah, for sure. And there's also a very, a, a real beauty. Popper always talked about that science requires falsifiable hypotheses. But what we call in the Catholic faith, the mystery of faith is actually like little children believing in something that's not falsifiable because it's a, a set of non-testable hypotheses that nonetheless, the presence of which, the reality of which nest in our hearts. It's that little bit of knowing, the little bit of knowing about the divine. It's a clue. But at the same time, we can't apprehend it with our scientific techniques. That's the beauty of it. That's the mystery of faith. That's actually what creates the relationship. In the same way, by the way, I have no physical evidence of the undying lifelong love I have for my wife. But I know it exists because I can feel it. I know it exists. And, you know, on my best day, she knows it exists too. <laughs> and, and so this is a really important thing. One more point on this, the corruption of the whole idea, you know, came from the, the Soviet Union, which was an atheistic society, as, mo as most formerly communist societies are. And one of the, the stupidest, most ham-handed moves from the Soviet regime was to try to shake the faith of Westerners. And in the 1960s, there was a pronouncement, there was a, a news release from the Soviet Union, and they said that the cosmonauts had headed up into orbit and looked straight out into space and had not seen any evidence of God, which is, of course, crazy. Crazy, because once again, that's staring at a Picasso and saying, I can't see Pablo Picasso inside this painting. That's evidence that there is no such thing as Pablo Picasso. The painter and the painting can't actually create evidence of each other per se. It's just not the way it works. And we need an integrated spirituality and scientific set of sensibilities that can allow us to appreciate both, to be a full human person, which is a, a physical being existing in a spiritual world and a spiritual being existing in a physical world simultaneously. Yeah, it's making me reflect on some of these developments that uh, have been happening in science as well over the last about 100 years, you know, these impossibility theorems, like from Gödel and the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And, um, you know, I think perhaps more recently, just in broader society, on the one hand, a hunger for more transparency and clarity about what are the facts and what is true and making news not fake. But on the other hand, also stumbling into the impossibility of having that quest be fully materialized purely on the basis of institutions and experts, you know, that are out there, you know, our capacity to lean on any of these outer resources. Every now and then we get pained to actually discover some fallibility in the science, some replication crisis that is making us go back and relook at a study from 20 years ago, which was very storied for 20 years and embraced by the whole world, but then it's been replaced by something else now. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've been working on in, in my teaching and work, Arthur, I think very much aligned with the ideas you're offering here is the notion of like outer the outer search for truth and then the inner search for truth mm. and how ultimately each of us needs to cultivate some inner channel you know through which we kind of can feel and sense our way to what is true because how much can we really trust the long-term viability of any idea or thought that uh, is emerging from the outside given the history 
of what we've seen. Absolutely. People, people have a very, very low level of trust in themselves. And one of the things that I actually see, I'm sure you do with your business students at Columbia, that I see with my students at Harvard, they know everything in the world. They know all the facts in the world. But the one thing they don't understand very well is the nature of their own desire. So it's the most amazing thing. So students will, they'll grow up and they'll go to high school. You know, what do you want? I don't know. I'll go to college and that will show me what I want. They're so used to being presented with facts and knowledge that they're pretty sure that the world will show them what they actually want. What is the nature of their own desire. You can't find it that way. You can only discern the nature of your desire through individual contemplation, through actual introspection, in, in my view, through prayer. It's the only way to do it. And so then they'll graduate from college and they're, they're at loose ends. I have every number of conversations with people from very, very good colleges who don't know what they want to do. They have no concept. They have no compass. And the reason is because they actually haven't done the work that's required introspectively. And, and, and it requires real work, by the way. What I always recommend is that they take a three to four month period and that they take 15 minutes a day, every day. And that's actually not quite enough, by the way, as you, as you know, and it's just with a notebook, start writing lists of things you like, lists of things that you want to do such that you can become more aware of the nature of your own desire, the things that are written on your own heart. You need more expertise in you. You need to write the book on you. And then for those that are spiritually adept enough or ready for it, then they need another couple of months of actually praying. For we as Catholics, we pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament where we believe that Christ really resides. And to take 15 minutes a day and pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament and say, Lord, show me my path, reveal to me the nature of my own desire. That is, there's just no replacement for that. We need to study ourselves in that way. If we don't, we'll always just be looking for the next book that tells us what we want, what we should do. We're looking for the next paper, looking for the next expert, the next guru, the next self-improvement person, the next YouTube video. That's not where you find it. I, I, I sometimes like to, you know, for those of us who are very analytical, who are very sort of into like, let's solve this problem, let's fix this problem kind of mode. I like to invite them to think about it as though, why don't you define this as the problem, you know, as a to think of this as like outside the frame of the problem this is the problem that you want to solve which is like um, if you don't have a purpose your purpose is to find your purpose right and that's by the way like everything else it's an adventure it's an opportunity i mean how exciting it is to to say i'm going to discern the nature of my own desire and then look for a way to meet that desire with the world that i'm trying to draw to myself this is like lewis and clark looking for the pacific ocean it's the most exciting thing ever yeah. and why would we avoid the adventure of actually of discernment of understanding the nature of ourselves. I mean, I just I just can't wait to get to work every day. And and these days that means actually going you know from upstairs to downstairs in my house where I am right now. I just can't wait every day because it's so exciting. I know I'm going to find something new uh, out about myself. I'm going to come up with some new ideas. I'm I'm sure that you feel exactly the same way. And every single person watching us has that journey of discovery that lays in front of them. And that can be an adventure for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah, so beautiful. Arthur, you were sharing a few very beautiful things about your parents. And um, and then you also shared about how you lost them, you know, quite young. And I wonder how that journey has been for you. I remember my father, he passed away when he was 85. He would almost have like tears in his eyes when he was reflecting on and talking about his parents. There was such a deep uh, fondness for them. They were almost like very alive for him all through his life. Although they had, you know, it had been decades, you know, since they had passed on. And uh, you brought them up a couple of times in, in the conversation and I wonder if you can give us a little bit more uh, of uh, their spirit you know something of uh, like a story or something that makes us appreciate and understand these two forces who, who clearly have been very very formative you know for you yeah it's interesting because like a lot of American families I left when I was 18 years old and and I've spent very little time with them after adulthood not on purpose for any particular reason but because a lot of families in the United States are extremely attenuated in, in India for example there's a, a much closer family bond than we do typically have in the United States. We move around a lot. I've moved 17 times since I was married. And, and the result is that I didn't have the closeness that I wanted to have. But after my parents died young, regrettably, I mean, my father died when he was, I mean, not, not like a kid, but my father was 66 and, and my mother was 73. And my mother was ill for 20 years before she passed away. And at the end, I was reflecting on that. And I was with a little bit of regret that I didn't, you know, they had had such a big influence on me artistically and spiritually and scientifically, intellectually but I didn't have the relationship with them as people. 
as I wish I had had. And I've heard my father's voice at that moment. I remember this moment of regret. I was thinking about, I was praying about it. And, and my father said to me, it doesn't matter because you build the relationship that you want with your own children. And it's true. The result is that I have a different relationship with my adult children than I had with my parents, a closer relationship with my children. The point is there's nothing that's permanent. There is no damage that's permanently done. There's no opportunity that was actually missed. There's a lesson that can be learned and then an opportunity that can be taken on that basis. So, you know, I'm really, really close to my, I mean, one of my children is a, a combat Marine and he's in Japan right now. He's in Okinawa right now and he's on deployment, but I talk to him every day. It's amazing. And my oldest son, who's a teaching mathematics, he graduated from college a year ago and he's a high school math teacher and he's staying with us and it's a blessing. And my little girl who's going off to college, we're really, really close. And what I'm doing is I have not just the memory and the legacy spiritually, intellectually, and artistically from my parents, I now have the relationship with my parents that I'm living with my children. And that was the last gift that I got from my father. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Arthur. It's so, so beautiful. I love the way that not just is this a reflection on the past, but really a shaping of the future in your dynamic with your own children and you're paying it forward like that. You know, it's so beautiful. When you think about these movements across these stages that you're going to talk about in your book, From Strength to Strength, what are those triggers, external or internal, that get you to really decide that this is the moment, you know, where I need to kind of transition? They're, they become relatively self-evident. And so generally speaking, the op that you see see the opportunity for growth, usually with a stimulus of what we would interpret as misfortune or pain or even trauma. So, so here's the thing to keep in mind. When you experience a loss or a defeat, and that is a signal to you that there's an opportunity in your life. Now, now why do I say that? I'm not trying to be Pollyanna-ish. Uh, I'm not trying to you know make lemonade out of lemons here. This is just a fact. Entrepreneurs in any walk of life where other people see misfortune and regret, they see opportunity. You know, they say, you know, everybody says, ah, oh, I hate this place. There's no good bars and restaurants in this part of town. The, the entrepreneur says, that's an opportunity to put a bar or a restaurant in this part of town. That's exactly the same attitude that we need to have about our lives. The signal to you that it's time to grow is pain. That's one of the reasons that pain is always associated with meaning. People don't say, oh, the funnest day of my life. That's who I realized who I was. That was my sense of purpose and meaning. No, it was like when I got fired from my job, when my relationship ended, when I failed out of college, that's when I really understood who I was. That's when I actually was able to see that it was time for me to grow. And with these particular borders between the ashramas, between Grihastha and Vanaprastha, sometime around age 50, your results may vary, like they like to say in the drug industries. But the point is, you're going to start to feel some pain, some discomfort, some disorientation, that you become a stranger in places where you were once not a stranger. That's a signal to you that it's time to grow that it's time to explore, it's time to move. Wow, that's powerful. You know, share with us your big dream for the next decade of your life. What is it that you're seeking to um, manifest for yourself, for your family, and for the world? You know, I'm, I'm a, a pretty simple man. My goal in life is to get to heaven and take as many people with me as I can. And the way that that manifests in a secular sense is I want to lift people up and bring them together. I thought an awful lot about that when I retired from my last position. I was the chief executive of a think tank in Washington, D.C. It was a very high-pressure job, a very public job. And I retired from that. I mean, retired is you know how we talk. I, I wasn't going to stop working. But I said, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And the answer was, I want to create a movement, a self-generating movement that will outlast me where we lift each other up and we come together as people, which is to say, I want to create a movement that is the spirituality and science behind the art of happiness. And that's what I'm trying to build. I'm trying to build that for general audiences. I'm trying to, I teach a class called leadership and happiness for people at the Harvard Business School and for executives around the world. I do a lot of guest teaching and what a joy it is because I'm able to write and think and speak and share ideas. But fundamentally, that's the idea behind it is to share uplift with other people, to share love with other people, to share happiness that actually comes generatively from the idea that we are all sisters and brothers. That's the legacy that I want to bring because it all comes down to the the, the who I am. That gets back, that get back to what I learned from Johann Sebastian Bach. The who I am, the why I'm trying to do this, what I'm dedicating myself to the next 10 and 20 years or how many years I have left on the planet is to glorify God and to refresh the soul. And if I can do that with my work as a social scientist, as a Christian, 
Christian social scientist. I'm just the luckiest man on the planet. Arthur, I you know really bow to that spirit in you. Namaste. Uh, this has been uh, tremendously powerful. What a wonderful purpose for you to articulate. I want to get to heaven and I want to take as many people with me. Such a beautiful thought to leave us with uh, at the end. Uh, wish you Godspeed in, in your journey, both for yourself and those that you will continue to impact growing this so in the months and years ahead. We're all much looking forward to your book and um, yeah, have a wonderful summer. I look forward to having you back here in our midst on the show when perhaps when you release your book uh, next as well. Thank you, Hitendra. Thank you. God bless you for your really important and inspirational work. I love everything that you write. I'm a, I'm a fan of what you're doing. And, and I feel like we're fellow travelers in this movement. To all of you for being part of that and to you especially, Hitendra. Um, thank you very much and namaste. Thank you.